expand your mind and enrich your world. It's time for another outstanding podcast from ICRT. We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week, a roundup of the top news stories from around the island over the past seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is Gavin Phipps, also of ICRT News. Gavin. Good evening. And by Skype, we're joined once again by Che Ting Ye of Ketagalan Media, a U.S.-based media group focusing on Taiwan issues. And uh, you're coming to us from San Francisco this evening. Is that right, Ting? That's right, and it's a pleasure to be here. Today on the show, we'll be looking at the birth on a China Airlines flight that warmed everybody's hearts until a number of uncomfortable details came out about it. A U.S. Treasury report with data that uh, makes it look an awful lot like Taiwan's central bank is maybe doing some funny business with the exchange rate there. And to round things out, we've got a few indictments to talk about. Uh, More than one case there, actually. Uh, But before we get to any of that, first... A new week, and the KMT has itself a new candidate. Of course, last Saturday, a party congress voted overwhelmingly to oust Deputy Speaker Hong Xiu-ju as the presidential candidate for the upcoming January election, and voted in party chairman Eric Ju, uh, you know, the guy who most people thought would be the candidate in the first place when the nomination process was rolling out in June. So now it's almost uh, like the last couple of months never happened, right? Uh, Okay, it's actually, in fact, been a a pretty rough couple of months for the campaign and for the party as a whole. We've seen a lot of very public infighting in the party, uh, a lot of disappointed Hong supporters. Uh, So it's a tough spot to bounce back from, but there's still some campaign left. And Eric Ju this week, looks like he's got some plans now for how he's going to spend it uh, in a pretty significant departure from Hong's campaign strategy. Ju announced this week a tentative plan to visit the U.S. early next month. Uh, Gavin, tell us about that announcement. Yes, Mr. Ju says he's going to Washington in early or mid-November. And he actually announced this on a local cable television station when he was interviewed. So he didn't come out and tell the press. He told this cable television station. And he apparently he spouted on about what he's going to be doing there. And nothing was new. He said, basically, he's going to go to the U.S., I believe, Washington and Los Angeles. And he's going to speak on issues of importance to cross Taiwan strait relations and trade issues with the United States. He touted the KMT as a stable policy maker on cross strait relations and he also once again touted the 1992 consensus which is a good old favourite of any KMT politician. And he also said he's going to be talking about the Trans-Pacific Partnership while in the United States. And he said he also expects to address problems encountered in consultations under the Trade and Investment Framework Agreement, which, of course, just wrapped up in Taipei. And there are issues surrounding the import of U.S. pork products there. So basically, he's going to America to shore up his support for the election and basically have conversations about topics that everybody knows about anyway. All right. So, uh... From what Gavin's saying, at least the tone of his voice, sounds like Gavin's just expecting a lot of same old, same old uh, ting. Uh, do you think what? What do you think that uh, Jew can uh, accomplish with a trip like this? Um, actually, instead of um, actual policy discussions or sort of pol- uh, policy results, um, I think most people will be more interested in looking at how he is received by the United States, uh, by government officials, or by uh, supporters in the United States. Um, as we all know, um, 
Eric Chu, he's a presidential candidate, uh, not the president. So there, uh, you know, he has uh, actually no legal basis to actually negotiate any sort of deal with the United States. But um, compare <clears throat> this trip to DPP uh, candidate Tsai Ing-wen's uh, trip, um, where she was, um, you know, widely sort of widely thought of as having a very successful trip because of the people who uh, she saw and the reception that she received from uh, think tank scholars, from U.S. Congress, uh, members of Congress, um, and from people in the administration. So I think that would be the most, uh, that would be the, the point of comparison that people would be looking for. Right. Uh, definitely, people were looking very closely at the way Tsai Ing-wen was received. Uh, a number of people noted that she was let into uh, various venues that no other DPP politician had uh, been let into before. So that that was pretty significant. Uh, but uh, so so, are we expecting uh, a similar trend with Eric Ju? I mean, would he perhaps be received even more warmly, and uh, would would that be seen as a big deal here in Taiwan? I don't expect Eric Zhu uh, to be received as warmly as uh, Tsai Ing-wen because uh, I, you know, people in the United States, they also, we also see the poll data. Uh, we also see the poll data. Um, we also talk to people in Taiwan. I mean, we, the people who would be meeting with these two candidates understand uh, what's been going on. They understand that Tsai is the favorite to, the favorite to win. So I, I don't expect a, a a warmer welcome for the uh, the KMT candidate. Um, although I do uh, sort of expect there will be some people um, who do want to see the two candidates being treated um, relatively equally, um, just to show that the United States is not interested in favoring one candidate over another. Um, the United States is interested in keeping the elections in Taiwan um, neutral and staying. Um, you know, and, and sort of staying on the sidelines as sort of, you know, welcoming, um, you know, any candidate that do visit the U.S. with a serious agenda. So, um, you know, personally, I would like to see um, that the United States sort of keep to that word. Um, whether or not that happens, I'm not so sure, uh, especially because it's also so late in the campaign, uh, in the campaign season. I don't know if, um, and, you know, this this kind of just happened within the last several days. So I don't even know if, uh, you know, I, I don't know what kind of planning they're doing. I don't know, who, you know, which which travel agencies they're calling. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure uh, how big of a trip they can put together in such a short amount of time. Right, and the U.S. government is generally seen as being uh, more sympathetic to the KMT. So a uh, lot of trend lines that are going to be watched, I think, pretty closely there, especially, you know, so many upheavals in domestic politics in Taiwan, it'll be interesting to see uh, how the U.S. reacts to that. And it'll be, of course, more interesting to see when he gets back, because both the KMT and the DPP were playing tit-for-tat who had the best U.S. trip. Right, exactly. It's just they didn't have photos. They could just show their photos. Look, I, I saw Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, we did have an article about um, Tsai Ing-wen visiting the Facebook headquarters, and so um, we would like to see if Eric Chu has something... You know, a little bit less political, but a little bit more, um, you know, fun or interesting or something a little bit different to show for his trip. Yeah, the tit for tat this time around is going to be who met the best billionaire. So wonder what billionaires he's going to be meeting this time around. There is 84 more days from the election. Uh, so still a lot of campaign to go. We're going to have to see where this leads. Uh, but moving out of politics up next. A delivery at 30,000 feet on a China Airlines flight started out as a heartwarming story, 
but now is raising some pretty serious questions. Earlier this month, a flight from Bali to Los Angeles was forced to change course to Alaska after a Taiwanese woman went into labor over the Pacific. It's now looking, though, like the woman may be on the hook for the cost of the flight diversion after reports emerged that the woman concealed from the airline the fact that she was 36 weeks pregnant. And in addition, there are now allegations that she was making the journey to gain U.S. citizenship for her baby. Uh, But before we get to the nastier side of this, let's just start out with uh, what we know about the incident itself, Gavin. This is from Aviation Police here in Taiwan, and they say they're saying that the woman did not violate ROC immigration laws by giving birth during the flight, but they are waiting for further investigations by the U.S. because, of course, the U.S. deported her several days after she gave birth on the aeroplane. Without the baby, in fact, because apparently the baby is now being taken care of by a friend of the woman's in the United States. So the woman has just disappeared from the media. And the baby, obviously, is being hidden somewhere in the States. But, of course, rumours are still abound that the woman did intentionally take the flight to give birth in U.S. territory. And the plane had to land in Alaska and Anchorage was delayed there. Then the plane had to fly on to Los Angeles. And I believe there's a one million NT dollar bill somebody has to pay. And China Airlines really don't want to pay it. Right. They're saying that the uh, insurance regulations are probably going to mean that this woman will likely have to pay it. Probably, yeah. Uh, and, and, and we get these allegations from a Facebook post from a stewardess that was at the incident. Is that right? The main allegation that she – apparently one of the stewardesses has been reported as saying that she overheard – she overheard this – is, this is all from the stewardess, nothing legit. It's a lot of hearsay here. It's a lot of hearsay. Anyway, apparently one of the stewardesses overheard the woman ask another passenger on the flight whether they were actually in U.S. airspace before the woman announced that, my waters have burst, I'm having a baby. Mm-hmm. Which, of course, led to some questions about that one. All right. Right. So uh, lots of questions abounding uh, over here in Taiwan. But uh, if you look at U.S. media reports, uh, I think that it perhaps touches a couple of immigration nerves over there, Ting. Uh, that's right. So just looking at some of the online comments that are left uh, on uh, websites, uh, US, U.S.-based media websites that reported on the story, um, there are some pretty nasty comments about how um, you know people are perceived to come from Asia, um, especially from China, to um, purposely give birth to um, to their babies in the United States to gain American citizenship. Um, and this also touches a, a little bit of a nerve. Such uh, it's sort of compared to what um, has been going on in Hong Kong, where the people of Hong Kong also sort of has this disdain for sort of the similar allegedly uh there's this sort of similar alleged behavior of Chinese women going to Hong Kong to give birth um to gain uh, Hong Kong citizenship for their children um so especially in the United States immigration has been a hot topic issue um it is sure to come up in the upcoming election season so um this definitely has a little bit of an international relations uh to it. But when people think about Taiwan, I mean, they, I don't think that they generally think of uh, Taiwan specifically uh, in these immigration issues. So this would, uh, on the U.S. side, they're more just thinking about Asian immigration in general. That's right. And, you know, as uh, sort of unfortunate as it is, it is uh, a China Airlines flight from Taiwan. So it does add to the little bit of the confusion on the part of uh, Americans sort of hearing about this for the first time. Hmm. 
All right. Well, I, I, I'm sure that uh, details will continue to dribble out. I, uh, currently, I think that we only have the woman's uh, surname, so we don't really even know too much about her. Uh, so probably uh, a more factual account, a more detailed account of the incident is going to emerge. So we'll be looking out for that. Well, we're going to have to leave that for now. Uh, when we come back, we've got allegations of currency manipulation against Taiwan Central Bank and indictments galore. That's coming up next after this. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around the island. I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps and Che Tingye of Canadagallan Media. Uh, now, the biggest news of today is uh, revelations about the lead pipes that are lacing their way around uh, these subterranean portions of Taipei. But uh, due to time constraints, we're not going to be able to really go into that story in depth. Uh, but there is plenty of good coverage of that in the Taipei Times. So do make sure to check that out. Up next, well, uh, we've been talking for weeks now about Taiwan's flagging economy, but after the release of a U.S. Treasury Department report, it's looking like Taiwan Central Bank has do- been doing its part to boost that economy. But the way that it's been doing it, uh, the U.S. is not too happy about that. Uh, we're going to bring in frequent contributors to the show, Ross Feingold of D.C. International Advisory, uh, to help us through the finer points of this econ story. Hello, Ross. Hello. But before we get to Ross, uh, first, Gavin, tell us what this report found. Yeah, well, apparently, according to a U.S. Treasury report, which was released on Monday of this week, the Taiwan Central Bank has been selling local currency in the last hour of trading 75% of the time in the first seven months of this year. Now... That doesn't mean anything to Joe Blow public like me, but apparently the U.S. Treasury has taken sort of he's been a bit irked by this, and apparently it's warned the central bank here in Taiwan of its exchange intervention method, and how it could potentially impact global exchange rates by doing this. Of course, the Taiwan the central bank here is denying any denying manipulating any exchange markets, saying that the move was essential to stabilising the island's economy due to concerns over extreme or irrational exchange fluctuations. So how do you read that, Ross? Is this is the bank defending itself? Is the US got a point? Or is it just tit for tat? Nobody really knows. Well, Gavin, they, they both have a point. Now, you, now you mentioned that the, the central bank says they, they only intervene in, in extreme situations, and, and that's supposed to be their guiding principle for this kind of intervention. And in fact, this report, which is, is issued two times a year by the Treasury Department, frequently mentions Taiwan for its intervention and recommends that it, it only be done when, in fact, there is extreme volatility. So the setting the bar very high for that kind of intervention What's happened in the last few months, and it's no secret in the marketplace, is that the central bank's intervention has has become uh, a bit more blatant in, in, in speaking with banks and traders and, and asking them to time their tr- large trades at, at different uh, points in the market trading day, and in fact entering the market in the last few minutes to execute a lot of orders, thus to depress the price of the Taiwan dollar, which, as you mentioned, uh, in theory should help Taiwan's exporters. So it's kind of a situation where this has always been a concern between the two countries, but that the central bank's methodology now has become so much more public and taking on a higher profile in the marketplace that the U.S. felt that this section of the report now required stronger language than it had in the past. But the fact that the U.S. Treasury is identifying Taiwan for this behavior is not new. 
And and this is kind of the reason that it's sort of happening now is this is amidst a sort of regional race to the bottom. Uh, I, I know that China is kind of seen as, as taking similar moves, and now uh, many other countries are, are, are doing the same. So it, Taiwan is kind of doing it in that context. That's right. And in fact, compared to the, its regional peers, the, the new Taiwan dollar had actually been a stronger performer this year. So whether it is actually hurting exporters, and, and we have data showing obviously exports are down, we don't know if it's linked to the currency value per se, but it's a factor. But, but just the optics, right? So exporters in Taiwan uh, asking for help across, uh, on a range of possible policy options. And one thing they, they could very easily cite is say, well, look, the, the ringgit or, or, or other currencies in the region are going down. So, so do something, central bank. So, the, of course, the central bank, uh, as much as it values its independence, is also a political entity, and they have to respond to, to the demands of, of Taiwan's exporters. Uh, one last point that I want to hit on real quick before we move on to the next story. Uh, is Taiwan doing anything illegal? Even if it was found that the bank was you know, doing this very purposefully, would it, would it be illegal or would it just look bad? Well, uh, the issue is this U.S. law that, that allows uh, the Treasury Department or requires the Treasury Department, we should say, to issue th- these reports does allow the Treasury to make an official finding of currency manipulation. Typically, this comes up uh, in the context of China more so than Taiwan or Korea or the other countries named in the report. However, the, the U.S. Treasury is, is very reluctant to make that official finding, and that's because it jeopardizes a bilateral relationship, which has other issues at play uh, rather than just trade. So the, the likelihood of, of the U.S. Treasury issuing an official finding that Taiwan manipulates its currency is probably very low. That being said, uh, this issue is now taking a higher profile on the bilateral uh, agenda, and, and, and that does include the other trade issues such as uh, pork and, and the things that are typically in the news. So uh, there, there's certainly some, some risk for Taiwan in the sense that uh, the U.S. now has something more pro- higher profile on its agenda when, when the two sides are uh, engaged in negotiations. All right. Well, we're going to have to move away from uh, economics now, but we do have a story towards the end that we could uh, use your help covering, Ross. So could you stick around for that? Sure. All right. So uh, we're going to keep Ross on the line, but uh, moving on to our final serious news for today, we've got a pair of indictments. First up, prosecutors have now made an indictment on charges related to the Formosa Fun Coast water park fire that, of course, dominated the news at the end of June. Uh, But, Gavin, families of the victims are uh, not happy with this indictment because they only got one guy. Well, they got the head of the local company that organized the Color Play Asia Party at the Formosa Fun Coast, Lu Zhongji. So just the organizer. Just the organizer, basically. And the prosecutor said they decided not to bring charges against eight other people, who included Chen Bo Ting, the chairman of the Formosa Fun Coast Water Park, because prosecutors said that there wasn't enough evidence to prove that they should also be held responsible for the disaster. Lou has actually said that, okay, I was the I was the person, but I should not be the only person to be charged and held responsible. And of course, like you said, the families of the victims, in fact, the five hundred odd people that were injured in the blaze, have also come out and said, "Hang on a minute, how did what? How is one person only responsible for this when surely other people were responsible, like the Fun Coast Park itself? Surely they're liable somewhere here." Right, and they would point to lapses in uh, safety oversight at the park. Uh, Apparently there were some irregularities in uh, firefighting and safety equipment at the park. Is that right? Yeah, there was – yeah, apparently there was not – it was a fun park – 
and there wasn't enough basically emergency equipment there. Well, there would have been, you know, a fun water park. A child trips over and twists his ankle. He gets a bloody nose. He gets indigestion and a runny tummy. Uh, someone trips over and bangs their knee. That's the type of accidents they, I presume, they're used to at the water park. Not a great fire that basically injured 500 people. So right. you could defend a park there because yeah. obviously, you know, they didn't expect this to happen. And and this even extends uh, beyond the park itself. Uh, apparently, a lot of people are scrutinizing the uh, regulatory role of New Taipei City, which is, of course, uh, uh, responsible for inspecting this park, making sure they're up to snuff. Uh, and so, Ting, I want your take. Uh, we're going back to politics again. Uh, we can't get away from that, I guess. But uh, could this come back to uh, bite uh, New Taipei Mayor Eric Ju? I mean, he's already in a lot of hot water, but could this just add to the list of things he needs to worry about? Uh, I definitely expect this to come up in the campaign somewhere. Um, I don't expect uh, Tai herself to sort of take this low blow, but I'm sure there's going to be a lot of grumbling and uh, you know, point, uh, finger pointing on uh, social media and on the message boards. All right. Uh, so maybe playing a little bit uh, of a role in the campaign. Uh, but moving on, we have a second indictment in our indictment double play to talk about now. Uh, now we're back to that Ministry of Education occupation, uh, or the storming, whatever you want to call it, uh, which was part of the demonstrations against changes to the high school history curriculum, uh, which protesters say reflected more of a China bent in Taiwan's history. That was all back in July. Now, Taipei district prosecutors have come out with charges against five of those anti-curriculum activists, uh, and it says there's another 22 that are not going to face charges. So, Gavin, these five uh, that are going to face charges, prosecutors are talking about actual physical violence uh, that they perhaps uh, took part in. Um, Sort of a melee, not not your physical violence as in, like, broken limbs, more like in a preventing security guards from keeping student protesters out of the office of the education minister. Right, so like body blocking. Body blocking, basically, yeah. And they're the only they're the only five people that have basically been charged, and the prosecutors have charged them with preventing the security guard. And the funny thing is, no reports I've read have explained what these guys are that they deliberately prevented from doing their job. Were they security guards, as in rent-a-cop, or mm. were they actually the police force? I would have thought that the two are sort of quite different in preventing one from doing their job than the other. Right. I mean, if you prevent the police from doing their job, you're going to be in trouble. Right, right, right. If you prevent a -a rent-a-cop from doing his job, was he doing his job in the first place would be my first question, but that's me because I'm cynical. Well, and because they were (laughs) high school students. They were high school students, yeah. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do to a high school student that comes running at you? You're not going to tase him, you're not going to batten him, and you're certainly going to shoot him. So, you know, there's some questions over this whole incident, really. But prosecutors have offered leniency, and they have offered the five suspended sentences. Mm -hmm. So I guess it goes on your record, which is not good. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, it's suspended, so if you're good for X amount of months, X amount of years, depending on how much they get then it gets expunged. Yeah. So, you know, in a way, it's a big thing, but in a way, it's a very minor case at all. What's interesting, though, 33 people were arrested following the July protest against the new history textbook guidelines, and charges have since been dropped against nearly about 99% of them. Mm-hmm. So it's just these five. It's a, very, it's a fairly narrow thing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, so, Ting, uh, you, you, you kind of follow, to some extent, protest movements in Taiwan. And, of course, there have been indictments related to other protests uh, earlier in the year. So we have, well, and last year as well. So we have lots of examples of this. 
Um, is this response, this this indi- these, this newest set of indictments, is this pretty much in line with uh, what you would have expected uh, based on uh, past history? Uh, well, definitely, certainly expect indictments to come down. Um, we've seen that with uh, almost all of the, well, if not all, most of the uh, social movements or protests uh, that has occurred in the past several years. Um, and it sort of created this uh, almost uh, standard operating procedure where you have uh, activists and uh, people trying to create, uh, make a splash in the news or try to get their voices heard through uh, ways that, um, you know, that sort of get their voices heard in the ways that hasn't been heard before. And so they uh, take um, these sort of desperate measures, take these um, extra legal or, you know, by some illegal measures to uh, get the voices heard. And then, you know, at the very end, after the dust settles, the the indictments come down. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and, you know, when you look at these indictments, a lot of times these protest groups, they will condemn them and say that there's a double standard. There's more of a... uh, more of an investigation into the actions taken by the protesters than by the actions taken by the cops. And there's always allegations that, you know, the the, the cops also were responsible for some amount of violence in these incidents, and, and that's not adequately investigated. Uh, and so there's always question whenever these uh, indictments come out, uh, perhaps will this inspire new protests or, or create new anger? Uh, do you see anything like that happening here? Uh, sort of for better or for worse, I don't quite see that happening. Um I mean, as we've seen with uh, the Sunflower Movement last year, you know, that was, um, you know, the biggest social um, unrest, if you call it, or sort of the biggest social movement we've seen in Taiwan in, um, you know, in, in almost a generation. And uh, indictments have come down. But that even then, that hasn't really created that much, uh, you know, sort of follow-up or that sort of uh, hasn't really created that much backlash um, afterwards. So um, especially with this case, uh, as Gavin said, the... Um, the charges you know, have sort of, in a sense, been um, you know, tempered down. I don't really see much of a backlash with this one. All right. So perhaps some of that uh, energy not quite as vibrant as before. Uh, okay, so that is it for the serious news bits for today. Uh, so we're going to move on to the fun stuff. And, uh, well, we've got a pachyderm that packs a bit of a punch. Gavin, tell us about that. Yeah, we do, Keith. Ali the Elephant. Ali the Elephant. Ali the Elephant went to town and took his trunk and threw a stone at a woman. (laughs) I guess that's a new song. Apparently, but the Shosan Zoo in Kaohsiung has accepted a woman's claims for compensation after her tooth was broken when Ali the Elephant threw a stone at her on October the 10th. That's a mean fastball that elephant has. It is, it is. And of course, the incident... Apparently, the woman suffered not only a broken tooth, but cuts to her mouth. Mm. And the zoo director has said that the zoo's insurance company is looking at the case and it has yet to determine the amount of compensation the woman will be paid. Then, of course, the zoo director came out and said in the same breath that Ali the Elephant does from time to time roll up stones and randomly hurl them at visitors. It just does. It's so a thing Ali likes to do. It wasn't a surprise that someone <laughs> could get belted by a stone. It's just, you know, Ali, she likes to throw stones. They put up a sign, though. I mean, that's... They put up a sign that says, this is an animal, very large, do not walk close, could get hurt, <laughs> elephant, human, and a picture of an elephant and a human. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the elephant's bigger. The elephant wins, basically. Yes. All right. So people do take note. But it's it's happened at Shosanzu. Now, Shosanzu is infamous for animal incidents. Mm-hmm. Several, quite a few years ago, I believe it was some miniature horses 
They were apparently savaged by wild dogs one night and the zoo staff went to work and apparently found carcasses all over the place. And then there was, of course, the famous incident with the crocodile, which took off the zoo director's arm. So quite a bit of history there. Yeah, quite a bit of history at the show, Senzu, <laughs> with animals getting leery. Now, we have to go to Ross for this because Ross always has something amusing to say. And this is an elephant called Ali. you gotta, you got to be able to do something with that. Well, Right. I think, I think for starters, it's, it's given the history with this particular elephant and, and the other animal incidents, it's clear that the Kaohsiung Zoo ignored the elephant in the room. Oh, is that the best you can do? <laughs> God, you, you, you had all that time to come up with something absolutely classic, and that's the best one you can have. <laughs> hey, he stayed on the line this whole time for us, man. Don't give him a hard time. We are very well, appreciative. You know, uh, we also keep in mind that this elephant is named after uh, Muhammad Ali, the famous boxer who's known for saying he floated like a butterfly and sting like a bee. Hey, but then he belted like an elephant. <laughs> there you go. Oh. <laughs> Holding on that proud Ali name. Uh, Ting, uh, you know, you're in the U.S., but uh, have you ever been able to make it out to the Soshan Zoo? Uh, unfortunately, I have not. But all I, you know, all I have to say is, uh, you know, I know baseball season is uh, underway in Taiwan, so... Um, Maybe there is a little bit of hope for the uh, pro baseball scene in Taiwan after all. Yeah, it's not called the Brother Elephants anymore, though, is it? He's missed his leaning, you see? <laughs> They're now called the China Trust Brothers. And, and Gavin, you, Gavin, we should also consider the political element here, given that the incident occurred on October 10th. So clearly it was a political statement by Ali. Could have been a political. Could have been a political statement. Yes, there are layers and layers to this. Conspiracies surround the alley, the elephant. Well, well Keith, I, I think we, we we can conclude by saying we need to look inside the trunk for the answers. I think that is the place we need to look. That is the place we need to look. All right. So while uh, our listeners are out there uh, busy looking there and getting to the bottom of this, uh, we will be busy wrapping up our show. That's all the time we have for today. You can send us your thoughts on the week's major stories on the Facebook page or on our blog. You'll also be able to find this program online at the ICRT website and on iTunes. If you are listening through iTunes, please take a second to rate and review the show. Let's us know what you're thinking and helps other people discover the program. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I'm Keith Menconi, joined by Gavin Phipps. Gavin? Yeah, good night. Uh, Che Ting Ye by Skype. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And Ross Feingold by phone. Ross, thank you as well. Good night. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.